Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Four days after the mass shooting at a supermarket in a black neighborhood in Buffalo that killed 10 people and injured three, New York Governor Kathy Hochul announced several steps this week to curb the growing number of extremist acts of violence motivated by racial hatred. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. Hochul says the measures will counteract what she calls the intersection of two major crises in New York and the nation, the rise of white supremacist beliefs and too easy access to military-style weapons. But the hate has not just affected our society and how people think. It's literally been weaponized because you can't act on the evil thoughts that have possessed your mind and the hatred that fills your heart if you don't have access to a weapon. Hochul is asking State Attorney General Tish James to investigate social media companies that she says legitimize replacement theory. That's the white supremacist belief that falsely claims immigrants and people of color are replacing white people. She says the companies use algorithms that amplify those messages and encourage more widespread sharing of the posts. In 2022, that's how radicalization is is occurring, through the social media echo chamber. And that's why there are 10 fewer people in Buffalo, New York today. These social media platforms have to take responsibility. They must be more vigilant in monitoring the content, and they must be held accountable for favoring engagement over public safety. In a statement, Attorney General James says the companies that she will probe include Twitch. It's owned by Amazon, and it's where the alleged Buffalo shooters' acts were reportedly live-streamed, as well as 4chan, 8chan, and Discord, sites that are used by people with extremist views. The governor is also strengthening the state's red flag laws, which allow law enforcement and others to petition a judge to order the confiscation of weapons of someone who is deemed a potential danger to themselves or to others. The alleged gunman, Peyton Gendron, was detained by police a year ago after he said he wanted to commit a murder-suicide at Susquehanna High School in Broome County, where he was a graduating senior. He was given a mental health evaluation and later released. The red flag law was never invoked. Hochul signed an executive order. It will make it mandatory for state police to file what's known as an extreme risk order of protection whenever they encounter someone who's making violent threats. Current law, it's an option to do so, and now it'll be a requirement. Hochul says she'll ask the legislature to pass a law to extend that requirement to all police agencies in the state. The governor says she'll also work to make sure that law enforcement, school officials, mental health professionals, and employers understand the red flag laws more clearly and when they should be invoked. The governor says she's continuing to work on a package of bills to close loopholes in the state's gun control laws, including making illegal a category that's known as AOWs or any other weapon. She says these weapons are functionally guns, but they are deliberately designed for the purpose of evading gun control laws. Hochul says she's also seeking to have all semi-automatic weapons sold in the state to be able to micro-stamp discharged bullets. That would make it easier for police to link ammunition 
definition to a weapon used in a crime. State Senate Finance Committee Chair Liz Kruger, a Democrat who supports gun control, says she expects the Democratic-led legislature to work with the governor to enact laws to close the loopholes and address the crisis. I think the legislature is absolutely motivated to pass the bills that the governor is proposing that will hopefully start to reverse some of this terrifying activity that is going on. Hochul also issued an executive order creating a state domestic counterterrorism unit. It will be under the Department of Homeland Security to find out where threats of mass shootings are happening before they occur and to start connecting the dots. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartalk. Alan, big news this week, of course, the mass shooting in Buffalo that killed 10 people and injured three. Governor Kathy Hochul promised action on hate speech. The shooting, one of the deadliest racist massacres in recent U.S. history, 13 people shot, 10 of whom killed. Almost all were black. We see a manifesto as well, white replacement theory. Your thoughts this morning as right here in New York, the latest in our scourge of gun violence in this country. Well, yes, David, this is really terrible. When you look at the mass killing in New York State, in Buffalo, in Kathy Hochul's hometown, which she was quick to talk about, it is a tragedy of the worst proportions. I don't know what to say, except that it could happen to any one of us if we walk into a supermarket, if we walk into a subway station. It could just take one insane, very crazy person to do this. We had some indication with this guy that he had been in a bad way for a long time. But now all of these people are dead. And I hope that we never get inured to the fact that this kind of thing happens on a regular basis and will probably be happening again because we know that there's copycatters out there, people who hear about it and then do the same thing. It's a terror. No one is safe. We have got to do something about our penchant for guns and gun distribution because that's what it's really all about. That's what it comes down to. After I do this, I will get letters and maybe a phone call from the gun people who say it's not guns, it's the people and all the rest of it. Nonsense. If you have a gun, there are those people who will use it. And we have to do something. I mean, something about the scourge. Seems like this just keeps happening over and over. We keep saying the same thing, that there isn't the will in Washington to do anything about stricter gun control measures. Even Governor Kathy Hochul, in one of the strictest gun states in the nation, says she wants to make even more strict gun laws. Well, she should, and we should, and the legislature should. The question is, what kind of guts do people have? You know, David, there are something like three guns in America for every human being. Think about that. That's nuts. That's really crazy. 
Now, when I use the word crazy about these shooters, I get mail, believe me, saying that. It's not fair to say these people are crazy. Well, they are. You don't like it? You can go and sit with a lumpen proletariat, as far as I'm concerned, as in like it a lumpen. There is no question in my mind that this country has gone gun crazy. Not only that, but Kathy Hochul made a call for a crackdown on social media. The idea that the online manifesto attributed to the Buffalo shooter was spread online, allows him to connect with so many others who believe, for example, in the Great Replacement Theory, which essentially says there's a conspiracy afoot to diminish the influence of white people by replacing them with non-whites. Hochul on Sunday urged social media companies to crack down on hate speech, calling the sites instruments of evil. Well, look, here's Hochul. She's the governor. She's running again. She has to show that she's doing something. So she makes these pronouncements, all of which are correct. There are too many guns. There are people running around with them. We have to do something about them. We have to deal with social media. But I don't see how that's going to happen. In other words, social media is social media. That's not going to stop. So what we have to do is to deal with our young people, with ourselves, to say this is no good and to make some rules that make sense. And one of those areas is gun control. We have to control the spread of guns. It means that people buy them in other states and they bring them to New York. We know that. It means we have to put a stop to that. And look, there is a gun lobby in this country that is second to none. It is just out there all the time. And whatever they can do to preserve the fact that we have so many guns and that we use them, they will do. Legislative Gazette Political Observer Alan Shartok. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Northern New York Congresswoman Elise Stefanik has been in the national spotlight since the mass shooting that killed 10 people in a mostly black neighborhood in Buffalo. National media outlets and some members of her own Republican Party claim Stefanik has embraced replacement theory, which the alleged Buffalo mass shooter cited as part of his motivation. Stefanik of the 21st District denies those claims Congresswoman Elise Stefanik's name was all over the news on Monday. National news outlets like the Washington Post, PBS, and the New York Times were reporting on Stefanik and replacement theory, the false idea that there's a plot to outweigh white voters with non-white immigrants. Stefanik's ally, conservative talk show host Tucker Carlson, has overtly defended the racist theory. Because it's not just Fox News. You have GOP lawmakers echoing this, quote, great replacement theory, including New York Congresswoman Elise Stefanik back in Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, a member of GOP House leadership, she invoked that conspiracy theory in her campaign ads last year. So you've got Elise Stefanik, who's the third ranking Republican in Congress, released a, a campaign ad on Facebook. New York Times reporter Nick Confessori spoke Monday on the podcast The Daily. Claiming that Democrats were plotting, quote, a permanent election insurrection by granting amnesty to millions of illegal immigrants 
Those Facebook ads ran last September. In one of them, a crowd of Latino-looking people is reflected in President Biden's sunglasses. Big, bold text says, Stop Election Insurrection. Stavonik's ad falsely claims that Democrats are trying to flood the American electorate with millions of illegal immigrants. While some Republican leaders like Stefanik don't explicitly mention racist ideologies, the Times' confessory says the message appears clear. I think you can hear and see the echoes of replacement theory in their own language, of real Americans being diminished, disempowered, even cheated by immigrants and their enablers in the elite and the ruling class. Stefanik denies any embrace of replacement theory. Her office denied an interview request, but her senior advisor, Alex DeGrasse, said in a statement, the congresswoman has never advocated for any racist positions. DeGrasse called members of the media, quote, groveling hacks, and said Stefanik supports legal immigration. Paul Smith's college professor, Joe Henderson, writes about white nationalism. When I read those, those ads or those tweets, I see her speaking to a white electorate and trying to make them afraid. Henderson thinks Stefanik is using fear and outrage for her own political gain. But some members of her own party say she's taking it too far. Illinois Republican Adam Kinzinger tweeted on Sunday that Stefanik is pushing replacement theory. Yesterday, Wyoming Rep Liz Cheney tweeted that Republican leaders are enabling white nationalism, white supremacy, and anti-Semitism. Joe Henderson says racist and white supremacist ideology does have supporters in Stefanik's North Country District. Henderson lives in Saranac Lake, where folks fly Confederate flags and display other white nationalist and pro-militia symbols. I look around at some of the you know, Punisher logos in my community and three percenter flags that are flying around. And, you know, there's clearly a taste for that in, in the area and if you look at some of the some of the maps of extremist groups, you know, there are white supremacist groups in the area. There are militia groups in the area. A poll from the AP released last week found that a third of Americans think there is some kind of conspiracy to replace white voters with immigrants. Henderson says pushback from fellow Republicans and reporting from major news outlets like The New York Times, The Washington Post and Politico likely won't change Stefanik's approach. I think the only thing that is going to have an effect on someone like Elise Stefanik is if the voters of this district tire of it. You know, what is New York 21 going to do about this, about this kind of increasing radicalization of our representatives? Voters in the North Country have consistently re-elected Stefanik to Congress. Since she was first elected in 2014, Stefanik has won every race by a double-digit margin. In a tweet on Monday, she said she looks forward to running for re-election this fall. That's North Country Public Radio's Emily Russell for the Legislative Gazette. New York U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand is calling for full funding of the Rural Broadband Program, an effort regional officials say is needed. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley reports. The Democrat recently outlined her efforts to fully fund the USDA's rural broadband program at $350 million in the 2023 federal budget. Across the country, 17.3% of Americans in rural areas don't have access to reliable broadband, compared to only about 1% of Americans in urban areas. 
Without adequate access to high-speed internet, business owners are isolated from new markets, students can't attend school, workers have fewer opportunities for good-paying jobs, and healthcare providers can't provide their patients with the best possible care. Gillibrand says she has made broadband and reliable internet access a priority since she entered Congress. She noted a provision she included in the 2018 Farm Bill to make grant funding available for rural broadband projects in high-need areas. She also advocated for prioritizing broadband in the American Rescue Plan Act, which provided more than $7.1 billion for such expansion nationally. In order to close the pervasive digital divide, Congress must do our job for rural Americans. Senator Marshall and I are sending a letter calling for the full $350 million for USDA's rural broadband program for fiscal year 2023. Access to reliable, high-speed internet is essential to nearly every aspect of modern life. We owe it to every American to ensure that we are able to make use of this critical resource and are not locked out of opportunities simply because of where they live. One of the challenges in providing full broadband service is building out the so-called last mile. Gillibrand says full funding of the rural broadband program addresses that access gap. This legislation will provide grant funding for any community, any government, any local entity that is willing to apply for the money exactly for the last mile. So any place that the private sector won't cover rural broadband, these grants will cover. Democratic Town of Plattsburgh Supervisor Michael Cashman says the pandemic highlighted the need for high-speed internet access in all areas. In the more rural parts of our community, uh, it's not the last mile, it's the last five miles. This is a necessity. We've known about the need for a long time. Funding is, is a critical component to getting to the finish line. And we need stronger infrastructure in every corner of the United States. And we need to think about how do we do business, how do we learn, and how do we grow and develop and stay competitive in a global society? Because if you're not there on the other end of your broadband, you don't exist, not even in your home community. You don't exist in the world. Senator Gillibrand said while $350 million has previously been authorized by the USDA for broadband grants, the program has not been fully funded. I'm Pat Brapley, WAMC News. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustino. Well, New Yorkers across the state this week voted for school budgets. The Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus sat down with the head of the New York State School Boards Association, Bob Schneider, to talk about the results. New Yorkers voted Tuesday for public school budgets and Board of Education candidates in a year when national issues divided many local communities. Turnout was sharply up in many districts. According to the New York State School Boards Association, 99% of district budgets were approved, including a handful that overrode the tax cap. And for analysis, we're joined now by Association Executive Director Robert Schneider. Thanks for being here. 
Thank you for having me. How does uh, this year's outcome statewide compare to other years? Well, since the tax cap was enacted back in 2012, we have seen a high passage rate of school district budgets throughout the state, usually in that 99, 97, 98% range. And those passage rates uh, are attributable to the majority of the school districts in the state staying at or below the 2% tax cap. We have a handful of school district 17 this year that that went for the override vote, if you will, where 60% of the voting community has to approve the budget and the override is overriding the tax cap of 2%. Interestingly enough, for those 17 districts statewide, 88% of them were passed, and that's a record. Remind us of how it works for that handful of districts that did not approve a budget. Now what happens? Well, they get a next uh, this next chance at getting a budget passed occurs on June 21st. The school district and the administrators will uh, present a new budget to the community on the 21st of June, and then they'll get a second shot at uh, the community can vote for budget approval. And what we've seen historically there, most of those second votes, uh, a large majority of them get approved. And if they don't, then the districts are back to a contingent budget? Yeah, it's a contingency budget. Uh, yeah, so that that's a kind of a bare-bones budget, if you will, comparable to the prior year. So that is not really a, a, good, a good spot for a district to be in, because especially in this situation where costs are rising uh, and, and also – most school districts are continuing to restore important programs and services for their students. So with costs rising and restoring based on the cuts that might have happened during COVID, it would be unfortunate if they would be at that contingency budget level. Is it fair to say that the tax cap is having the desired effect? Um, I, It's a good question. Um, I think so as far as, you know, it's a more stable uh, predictor of, of what, uh, you know, tax uh, costs will be for the the, the, uh, the member, and, and it helps on the state aid side also. Uh, but, but, you know, there are certain situations where we, we see that the tax cap formula needs to be changed. Uh, we know certain districts in that override group had negative tax caps, uh, a certain revenue line item like a payment in lieu of taxes or a capital debt project payment comes off the books and they're forced to ha- be in a negative tax cap situation where they have to increase their ta- taxes significantly. We do have to watch moving forward. I hope this inflation inflationary situation is temporary. I don't know if it is, but then you really got to look at that from a different perspective. Is 2% enough to cover all these costs? School districts are doing so much for their community and for their students. There's a lot of costs involved in uh, day-to-day operations of a school district. Just take mental health as an an example. There's a lot of students that need supports during the day in the school building. There needs to be more counselors, more psychologists. And and there's all these other programs that are so important for the future of this state and this country. We've got a a learning loss situation. It's an opportunity to to invest in these students that don't have either the computers or the bandwidth necessary for them to learn in an optimal setting. Um, So we have to be very aware of those cost in that school district and and what drives them and and is the tax cap enough in the future uh, to, to sustain that.
What role is the uh, increase in state investment in education spending in Governor Hochul's uh, first budget, which was approved earlier this spring, uh, having on school districts? Well, you know, the budget she put forward was similar to what the legislature approved. One of the interesting things that Governor Hochul had mentioned is that the state is in a situation right now, at least, that they're predicting a reserve into the future several years out. Uh, If you remember, prior to COVID, the governor was mentioning that they were in a budget deficit. So that role, hopefully, you know, we can maintain, you know, with fiscal soundness, you know, statewide and, and revenues coming in, that we can continue to fund the 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 new baseline, if you will, and, and uh, support our school districts. You remember the funding scenario. There was really three parts to it that that resulted in this increase in funding around the state. You had the federal stimulus money, and you know we know that's going away in a couple of years. You had the regular state aid budget increase and in funding from the budget, but then the foundation aid uh, was now being paid, uh, that, that it was due school districts around the state. Uh, that's money that was due districts for many years back. We've had two uh, years of that being paid. It's broken out three installment payments. The last one will be next year. And that was a significant move by the governor where we have that that money that that was due us to uh, support, once again, the communities, the school districts, and the students in those those districts. Let's uh, change gears now and talk about the elections for school boards. Well, what we saw was there were more groups that are focusing in on supporting candidate uh, elections, but the results showed differently. We did see some candidates that were supported by newer groups that have popped up. They were voted in, but for the most part, a lot of them were not voted in. And couple that with the fact that there was large voter turnout, that makes me feel good because when there's greater voter turnout, the community's coming out to vote. And most of the voters, they make an informed decision before they go into that booth and make the vote on the budget and the school board election. But we did see some of them get through. But keep in mind, we've always seen certain groups will come forth based on issues. And we have, you know, constantly new school board members coming on school boards around the state, and we're here to assist them. That's the Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus, speaking with Bob Schneider, Executive Director of the New York State School Boards Association. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2220. Or just listen on the web at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.